Good morning. <clears throat> Crackle is me, so that'll be exciting. Uh, thank you for the privilege of preaching to you guys again. We had a excellent week. Um, I think the fact that I was rather ill all week and yet feel delightfully rested um, is a testament to the fact that we are to rest in, in God and that no amount of sleep, couch, reading, TV, anything else will give you the rest that we're supposed to find in our Savior. Uh, it was a, it's a fantastic week. The singing is just amazing. Um, Behold Our God is one of my favorite two songs to sing there with them. And uh, the first song we practiced this morning. And it was incredibly uh, good. It was just good. Um, it's awesome to be around so many pastors. Um, I love ladies' voices, obviously. I married one. Um, but uh, hearing that many men um, actually sing uh, to a Savior that they love was just, it's just always one of the best parts. Um, so between T4G, the pre-conference, my counseling classes, and the books that I've been reading this week, I've got a lot of stuff floating in my head right now. Uh, and I'm going to do my best to not try to synthesize all that into some kind of Frankenstein message for you. Um, but uh, John Piper preached about half of my sermon uh, at T4G. Um, I think Dr. Platt did another quarter of it on the last day. <clears throat> and then I heard the other quarter uh, at our counseling certification stuff yesterday. So uh, the Word of God has been open this week to me. Uh, I'm excited to open it to you. If you have your Bibles, let's open up to Ephesians chapter 4, 17 through 20. I'm getting a lot of noise and ringing <clears throat> like that. There we go. I want to ask the question first, what do you want to be? What do you want to be? question was posed to us yesterday. Uh, what do we want to be? People oftentimes don't know how to answer that question. Um, there's a, it seems like there could be a lot of answers, but at the same time, it feels like you should only have one, right? And so when you ask, what do you most desire? What do you want to be? Who do you want to be when you grow up? When we were a kid, we had no small litany of answers to offer. And yet when we become adults and have not yet accomplished some of these things, you, know, you wonder, what do I want to be? And there's even the question of who am I? Not even the future concern of what will I be, but what am I now? I think the question of what am I now helps answer the question of what do I want to be? Because if you look at what you're doing now, it will help us define and see what indeed it is that we want to become. And so many people will say in response to what you want to be, that they want to be a, a godly person, a good husband, that they want to raise good children, children that even may love God, right? And those are all worthy things to want to be. The question is, what are you doing to become that? Because oftentimes there's very little in our lives that lines up with what we say we want to be. In reality, we want to really know every show that's on CBS and ABC 
and the trilogy of Chicago Fire, Med, and PD, right? I mean, that's what we're about. The things that we are doing help illustrate and show us who we are. This is not a new concept for renovationites. We've always talked about our being as our identity, right? And our doing comes from our being. And so today we're going to look at who we are. And ideally, hopefully, who we were. If we remember where we are in Ephesians, we're in the latter half of the book and its progression. And we've begun to see this argument posed by Paul. And that... Do I need to move my mic? Okay. We begin to see this argument posed by Paul that we are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of which you've been called. And that's been a resounding theme and echo, but it's something that he stepped away from after verse 3. And he goes into this sort of uh, doxological and theological presentation of the faith, where he's both at the same time exalting Christ and who he is and God the Father, and at the same time showing what the church is supposed to be. And he steps into this, this design here of explaining what does a church look like before he really ever flushes out what does it mean to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And we've seen some components of it as we look at how does the church develop. I mean, what's this foundation that he talked about in chapter 2? What, what are these now evangelists, prophets, apostles, shepherds, teachers? What is that all about? What is the equipping for? And the idea is that unity is the key theme here, right? Now, as we step out of that uh, after this past few weeks and into this next section, beginning with verse 17, we start to see really him come back to this argument that he began in chapter 1. He says this, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. So I think it would behoove us to take a second and look at all of Ephesians and the occurrences of walk. This is something you can easily do in Bible Gateway. Type in walk, hit enter, go to the right bar, hit Ephesians, all the verses in Ephesians that say walk. And here we go. Listen to the, listen to the design and the idea that is wrapped up in this idea of walking. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And later we, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a worthy manner of the calling to which you have been called. And now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord, and so walk as children of light. And finally, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. We need to 
orient ourselves around this idea of walking. Walking is where we're going to be for the rest of this book. And we're going to see this contrast established now and then later pick back up in chapter 5 again as we begin to talk about what does it mean to be the church. How do we put together all of this stuff that we've learned in chapters 1 through 3? Excuse me. Verse 17, let's read our text today. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. For they are darkened in their understanding and alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way that you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness." The first thing that I want you to see today is the plight of the lost. The plight of the lost. The first thing that we're going to look at here is identity. What is the identity of the lost? What does it mean to be lost? Have you ever thought about how you would answer that? I think for, the, for believers, I think most of us would answer, they're apart from God. They're just not saved. We always put the uns and the non, the non-believer, the unsaved, the unredeemed. There's always an un, 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 im, un. What is the true identity of a lost person? What does their state look like? If you're here today and you don't know Christ, I would encourage you with the plight. See where you're at. See for once what your identity really is. I have nine pages. I'm going to read. Can <laughs> get through this? Ugh. Identity. Doing comes from being, right? So don't miss the tracing of cause and effect here, okay? It's easy to get lost in, in Paul's lists. It's easy to miss emphasis. It's easy to miss uh, root causes of things and what is really at the foundation of some of his lists sometimes. Oftentimes, it's just a list of things, okay? And, and that's okay. And we're going to encounter some of those today. But in this case, it's a progression. And sometimes with Paul, it's a downward or upward spiral. As he either builds something up or as he begins to dig down deeper. And so don't miss the tracing of cause and effect here. If you look at your text, (coughs) it says, No longer walk as the Gentiles do. That's our premise, okay? We're going to put that aside for a moment and look here now. In the futility of their minds, period. Okay. Don't walk like them in the futility of their minds. We could call that entire verse a summary statement. And you look at 18, and you begin to see the progression to futility of mind. The first is that they are darkened in their understanding, and then coupled with that is an alienation from the life of God. But then we have cause and effect and and ownership-type words, and because, right? Because of the ignorance that is in them. And then we have another Ownership type word or cause and effect word, do. Do to what? Their hardness of heart. 
If you trace this down, what is the root cause? A hard heart. A hard heart is the root cause for these lost people, these Gentiles. The idea of hardness of heart is where we're going to begin first. It carries the idea of a a stone harder than marble. Uh, The way that we would describe it is just a, a heart of stone. And in our text here, their hardness of heart describes really an inability and an unwillingness to respond to God's truth. Not only can they not do it, they don't want to do it. That's a both and. And the parallel text that we're going to read in just a little bit in Romans 1.18 describes men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That they suppress the truth. This is a deliberate suppression of the truth. Not only do they not know it, can they know it, they don't want it. They don't want to see what is there. When I think about suppressing the truth, it reminds me of Adeline who will come in in the morning sometimes, particularly when she first realized that she could escape her room by herself. And she would come into our bedroom and just stuff on her face, all right? Not the kind of stuff that I'm dealing with. Foodstuffs, all right? Like chocolate, all right? She looks like a clown made out of chocolate. And she comes up to us and we go, Adeline, good morning. Hi. What you got there? Yeah. Right? We can practice our parenting questions and we're getting to the heart. What's on your face? Well, nose. Thank you, smart aleck, almost three-year-old. Not helpful. Uh, what is the brown stuff on your face? Hair. Okay. <laughs> I don't know which one she's like right now. Maybe me. We'll get past that. Adeline, did you get into the chocolate? No? Are you sure? I think you have chocolate on your face. Oh, I thought I got it all. That's suppression of the truth. It is clear. Clearly obvious. You can use almost all of your senses to understand what is indeed the truth, yet she suppresses the truth. Paul is talking about an aggressive suppression of the truth. It's aggressive. It's a deliberate refusal of the moral light available to them in their own thought and in conscience. It's an obstinate rejection of the truth of God. And that obstinate rejection of truth is the beginning of a terrible downward path of evil. And so we have to then ask the question, if it starts there, if it starts with hard heart, how does the heart do this? How does the heart put us, the hard heart, put us in the state of walking in futility as the Gentiles do? And so the next one we want to look at is the futility of mind and uselessness. Let's go back to the top. The idea of a futility of mind is really ultimately, you could write this in maybe next year uh, in your Bible, is the idea of uselessness. Or, or maybe even vanity if you want to go back to Ecclesiastes. The idea of vanity or uselessness. And, and, and really a good definition for it is aiming with silly methods at a meaningless goal. When we talk about Gentiles in this passage, we're not just talking about the non-Jews. All right? We're talking about uh, what we would term pagans. Uh, and so it, it's, 
and certainly all Jews, but it can even ultimately include lost Jews. We're talking on a religious sense here, not necessarily an, an ethnicity. But we're talking about the pagan mind. And what they do is they aim uh, with silly methods at meaningless goals. I imagine some of you feel this way about sports ball. Okay, sure, there's still 100,000 people worshiping okay, at the horseshoe yesterday for this silly methods at meaningless goals. If you've never scored a touchdown before in your life, whether real or imaginary, then I just I don't want to hear it. <clears throat> the mind has lost touch with reality because it lacks a true relationship with God. And it's left fumbling with silly, stupid, insignificant, inconsequential, petty, and worthless side issues. Yes, I used the thesaurus there. It's helpful. It's helpful to see really how just silly it is. I mean, what are they pursuing? They've lost touch with reality. And because of a lack of relationship with God, everything that they are about is silly. It's stupid. It's insignificant. It's inconsequential. It's petty. It's worthless. They're pursuing things that don't matter and things that will not last. I think Paul is speaking to the, to, to the Gentiles who are wrapped up in the Greek world and the Roman world of gods and goddesses. It certainly has in mind uh, an ethnic piece here, though. I mean, we're talking about empty minds worshiping dumb, empty idols. You have people that are capable of building one of the seven wonders of the ancient world in the temple of Artemis at Ephesus, and yet what do they do? They bow down to silver idols. Empty minds, worshiping dumb, empty idols. You see, the worshipful acknowledgement of the one God is the foundational uh, pinnacle to all useful knowledge. And so their life, sadly, has neither finish line nor goal, but it's carried out in futility. They are going nowhere and they are going there quick. They have no perception. This leads us to the next one, darkness and understanding or maybe in thinking depending on your translation but the idea of darkness and their understanding their thinking has become darkened so that they are blind to the truth they are blind to the truth they cannot see it close your eyes you're blind you have no perception it is not some temporary condition the light of their understanding has gone out. <clears throat> They're incapable of grasping the truth of God and His gospel. I love the feistiness of, of Calvin when he, he kind of enters in here in his commentary in Ephesians 4. He says, Let men now go and be proud of their free will, whose guidance is here marked by so deep disgrace in respect to the kingdom of God and all that relates to spiritual life, the light of human reason differs little from darkness. For because it has pointed out the road at all, it's extinguished. And its power of perception is little else than blindness. For before it has even reached the fruit, it's gone. The true principles held by the human mind resemble sparks. But these are choked by the depravity of our nature. 
before they've been applied to their proper use. You see, all men know, for instance, that there is a God and that it is our duty to worship Him. But such is the power of sin and ignorance that from this confused knowledge, we pass all at once to an idol and worship it in the place of God. Similar to Piper's exposition this week of the bondage of the will with Martin Luther, we can't do it. We can't. Our free will leads to destruction. It will never lead to God. Never. Because we are blind and because we cannot and will not see the truth. Reading Calvin puts me in mind of Romans chapter 1. I mentioned it earlier. And here it is. If you have your Bibles, flip with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. And for His invisible attributes, namely, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. Ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, and so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they instead became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for silver idols resembling an atrociously ugly wolf and crow. Therefore God gave them up in their lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. And for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, For their women exchanged natural relations for those who are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, They give approval to those who practice them. See, they live according to a futile way of thinking because as far as their understanding is concerned, they exist in darkness. The idea of darkness is going to carry forward in Ephesians 
Later in chapter 5, verse 8, Paul will say that they are darkness. And that they partner in the unfruitful works of darkness in verse 11. And then finally in chapter 6, he says that as they are that they are allied with the evil spirits that continue to have power in the present age of darkness. They are darkness. They partner in the unfruitful works of darkness and they are allied with darkness. They are darkness. And the picture is of an existence that is aimless because it's ignorant of the truth and is kept in this condition by powerful spiritual forces. So the spiral that we have followed is futility, foolishness, and now idolatry. So where does that leave the darkened? Alienated from life. Alienated from life. They are dead through their trespasses and sins. Chapter 2, verse 1 and 5. And they have no relationship at all with the living God. Chapter 2, verse 12. Clearly, the idea here is that they are alienated specifically from citizenship in Israel. From the covenant promises of Israel's scriptures and from the God who made those promises. This uniting that we've gloried in in chapter 1 and 2 and that we get, got to see echoed in, at the beginning of chapter 4 in this unity of the church is not a reality for them. God's most important covenant promise to Israel was not the land. Arguably, it was not even the law. Maybe not even the relationship and presence with God himself. I think you can make a strong argument that one of the most important covenant promises to Israel was that he would give them life. That he would give them life. If you look in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 15 through 20, we see what we, we have uh, termed a blessings and curses. We spent a little bit of time camped out here in our Gospel and Kingdom series. When we talk about kingdom, we talk about God's people in God's place under God's rule and subsequent blessing. Unless you are not God's people, not in God's place, and disobeying his rule, then you are under curse. It's laid out here for us in Deuteronomy 30. Starting in verse 15, it says, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in His ways, and by keeping His commandments and His statutes and His rules, then, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But, if your heart turns away and you will not hear but are instead drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth 
to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying His voice, and holding fast to Him. For He, for He is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give them. They are alienated from life, and they are under curse and death. They are dead in their trespasses of sins and darkness. Why? Due to the ignorance that is in them. Ignorance in the Old Testament would show that you, rather than be ignorant, you should know God. And to know God means to be in a close personal relationship with Him. And so knowing, knowledge, knowledge of God, biblical knowledge of God, has to do with an obedient and grateful response of a whole person. It is not simply intellectual assent. Whereas on the other hand, ignorance then is a failure to be grateful and obedient to the person of God and the knowledge of Him. And so it describes someone's total stance, and this includes emotions, will, and actions, not just, again, an intellectual assent or a mental response. I.e., what we're, we're talking about here is not to know the Lord is to ignore Him. Not to know the Lord is to ignore Him. Someone new walks into our congregation. Not to acknowledge them is to ignore them. To say no to His demands. And such ignorance is culpable. We can be held and are held culpable for our ignorance. He says, that's not fair. How can I be held responsible for something that I don't even know? Because you willfully disobey. You suppress the truth. Because we suppress the truth. It's a kid who gets up at night and takes the new puppy and brings it into their bedroom, sneaks it in, wants to spend time with it. The parents hear a noise. The kid stuffs the puppy into the toy box, sits on top of the box. The parents walk in. Johnny, do you have the puppy? Do you have the puppy? You have, no. No. Or if you have my dog, it sounds like this. Tail all the time, right? You have the puppy? No. No. No puppy in here. Suppressing the truth. You're held culpable. You're a liar. You're lying about truth that you don't even know. That is what it means to be ignorant. And so we are held culpable for that. And an inability to understand the light of God's truth is no excuse for their broken relationship with Him. So where does this lead? And we, where does all this lead? What does hardness of heart cause? It causes futility. It causes darkness in your understanding. It causes ignorance. It causes alienation from life. And so what do we do with that? What happens here that Paul gives us? You see a a short sketch. He steps away for one verse, and it kind of gives a short sketch of, of what this looks like. First, callous. 
You pick up this idea from hardening. So I, I rearranged the order as we went through the text. Bring hardening back to the end, like it's supposed to be. Due to the hardness of heart. They are callous. He's picking back up from that. So how hard are they? They are callous. They have lost all sensitivity. They no longer feel pain. When I play bass again now, I have pain. <laughs> All right? I had amazing calluses before. Our sixth drummer walked away. I had awesome calluses. It hurts to play bass guitar now. On the left hand. On my right hand, if I play, there's a potential that I will bleed. Calluses help us be desensitized to pain, and in many cases it's good. I have new calluses now in really random places on my hands from sticks, playing drums. People have calluses from weightlifting. You have calluses from different things. You have calluses on your feet. It desensitizes pain. Well, that's okay. That's a good thing, except when we're talking about a spiritual matter. Because when we're talking about God and conviction of sin, it's not a good thing to lose all sensitivity. You no longer feel pain. They are callous. They lose the capacity here particularly, and you see this in our culture, to feel shame or embarrassment. They lose the capacity to feel shame and embarrassment. We should feel shameful for certain things. The church should not be a culture of shaming. And we'll get to that. But we should feel ashamed for things. That's why we wear clothes. I'm all for breastfeeding. Cover up. There is a certain amount of shame that should come with things. When you are caught in a lie, shame. When you're doing things you're not supposed to do, shame. It's part of the created order in a fallen world. And it's an indicator that we're doing something wrong. And a callous person will lose the capacity to feel shame or to be embarrassed. And they go beyond that to cause the despondent. If you're already calloused, watch out. Despondency is next. This is talking about like low spirits from a loss of courage or hope. They have no hope. And so they lose all self-control and they are given over completely to their desires. They're literally given basically to themselves. What God does in this, and we saw this in, in Romans chapter 1, is that God gives men and women over to their debased behavior that they have gladly chosen. They've gladly chosen it. incredible about this is that in the human activity of being callous and despondent and, and giving yourself over to your lusts and desires, there is a divine judgment that pl takes place. God gives you over. But it is also at the same time a self-judgment. It's judgment brought on you by no one other than you. Because this is the essence of hell. This is the essence of hell. I'll admit, I think, for both of us that we don't preach on hell enough. Likely heaven, either. I think what we do practice 
weekly, multi-weekly, as a concern for sin. So I'm, I'm pleased with that trajectory for our church. What I think maybe we might miss in our church is an understanding of where that sin that we're so concerned about leads to. And so I think we need to step away here for a second and see what this is. This is the essence of hell to be given over completely to our desires. C.S. Lewis says this, Hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining and always blaming others. But you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish that you could stop it. I don't need to be so complaining. I shouldn't be so grumbly. I, I maybe shouldn't blame others all the time. And You wish that you could stop it, but there may come a day when you can no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or maybe even to enjoy the mood, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. It is not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. I think we've lost the fear of hell because of all the fire and brimstone and folksy sounding version of hell. That's something to be terrified of. Tim Keller describes it like this. Hell, then, is the trajectory of a soul living a self-absorbed and self-centered life going on and on forever. And in reference to the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in the Gospels, he says this, The rich man seems blind to what has happened when he's in hell. He does not even ask to get out of hell. He simply wants relief from the fire with a cool drop of water on his tongue. He doesn't want to leave. Note the astonishing amount of denial and blame shifting and spiritual blindness in this soul in hell. Note that the rich man, unlike Lazarus, is never given a personal name. I think it strongly hints that since he had built his identity on his wealth rather than on God, that once he lost his wealth, he simply lost any sense of self. (coughs) He goes on later in another writing. He says, in short, hell is simply one's freely chosen identity apart from God on a trajectory into infinity. We see this process where it's small, in addictions to drugs and alcohol, gambling, and church, pornography. First, there is disintegration because as time goes on, you need more and more of the addictive substance to get an equal kick, which leads to less and less satisfaction. Second, there's the isolation. As increasingly you blame others and circumstances in order to justify your behavior. No one understands, you say, Everyone is against me. And we mutter it in greater and greater self-pity and self-absorption. And when we build our lives on anything but God, that thing, whether it's a good thing or not, becomes an enslaving addiction. It becomes an enslaving addiction. It's something that we have to have to be happy. Personal disintegration happens on a broader scale. In eternity, this disintegration goes on forever. There's increasing isolation, denial, delusion, 
and self-absorption. When you lose all humility, you are out of touch with reality. No one ever asks to leave hell. The very idea of heaven seems to them a sham. So we see that hell is therefore a prison in which the doors are first locked from the inside by us and therefore are locked from the outside by God. C.S. Lewis helps us see why people in hell are miserable. He says, we see raging like unchecked flames, their pride, their paranoia, their self-pity, their certainty that everyone else is wrong and everyone else is an idiot. All their humility is gone and thus so is their sanity. They are utterly, finally locked in a prison of their own self-centeredness and their pride progressively expands into a bigger and bigger mushroom cloud. They continue to go to pieces forever, blaming everyone but themselves. Hell is that writ large. Hell is the greatest monument to human freedom. All God does in the end with people is give them what they want most, including freedom from himself. Uh, What could be more fair than that? At the judgment day, one of the two parties present will say, thy will be done. It will either be us acknowledging God and saying, Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and Father God, thy will be done. Or it will be the Father judging you and saying, thy will be done. He gives us three pieces of vice that they have turned themselves over to. Sensuality, talking about works of the flesh. They throw off all restraints and they flaunt themselves, unawed by shame or fear, without regard for self-respect, without regard for the rights and feelings of others, and without regard for public decency. There's a five-day festival like that on the West Coast. One of the reporters talked to one of the revelers and said, don't take the first woman that you see. The second one is always the best. And then you start all over again the next day. Impurity, riotous and excessive living, unrestrained sexual behavior. Calvin defines it like this, and it's, it pains me. They surrender themselves with brutal violence to all wickedness. Surrender themselves with brutal violence to all wickedness. They are greedy and covetous. They have a continual lust for more. Kent Hughes, one of our commentators on Ephesians, says this, What is said here may seem harsh, but this is reality. This is reality. Paul's opening line on the subject in verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord means that these are not Paul's ideas, but they are Christ's. This is how the risen Lord sees the world. It is so important that we Christians embrace this assessment of the world without Christ because we then see that it is a radically lost world. We then 
can comprehend why man cannot save himself and why Jesus came. A loss of the biblical vision of the world is behind the erosion of Orthodox Christianity in many places because if you imagine the world is better than it is, then the necessity of Christ and his cross is lessened and the potential of unregenerate man is elevated. This is the way that Jesus sees the world and it is the only way to rightly see the world. But, but, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Let's look next at the reality for believers. But that is not the way you learn Christ. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. As the first thing that we must do is put off our old self. We must put off our old self first. I'm convinced that one of the biggest problems we have in the church landscape today, and maybe even here, is that we keep trying to put on without putting off. Hear me out. I'm going to be dabbling into, into some of these verses. Um, I'm not going to exposit any more of that because I'm saving those for Matt. But I need to touch on this idea here. <coughs> I think a major problem is that we keep trying to put on Christ without having put off our former self. Even this way. With my weight, I've been I'm talking with you guys, a lot of you guys about this. It's something I want you to see my progress in, hold me accountable on. I want to encourage you with those things. I can't just put on self-control. I tried that. I tried that a year ago. I've tried that before. Last summer, I had a good amount of success in bringing my weight down. But it was just me trying to put on self-control. And I failed. I failed. A couple of weeks ago, I was dealing with anger. I never thought that I was susceptible to anger. People have always called me a gentle giant, nice guy. I was always sweet. I was always these types of things. Remarkable for a bigger person who's supposed to be a bully and put people in trash cans. I didn't put people in trash cans until I was a senior. Um, those type of things, right? So I never thought that I could be angry. That was like one of the problems that I had in football. It was just all technical for me, and I just did my job. I didn't get like emotional and have heart and things like that. I have those things while I watch football. Not while I'm playing it, I just want to do my job. And so I didn't think that I could get angry. I only got in one fight in football. I was in seventh grade, and everyone freaked out. All right? So that's why I didn't think that I could get angry, because everyone's response told me, you don't have a problem with anger. <coughs> I listened to Paul Tripp talk about his issues with anger. I'm like, really? That mustache can't get mad at anybody. There's no way. You're a friendly caterpillar. But he says he has anger problems. And I've began to notice anger in my life over the past uh, probably year. And it kind of came to a head uh, a couple weeks ago on, on one thing. And I just I was frustrated, right? When you're angry, you're not angry. You're just frustrated. All right, Jesus juke. Um, you're angry. I was angry. And I think rightfully so. You can't be rightfully angry. 
I just don't respond to it well often. <laughs> I, I was legitimately not just offended, but I would say wronged. Okay? I think that's, that happens. There's a reason Hebrews 13, 17 it says, let the elders do their job without groaning. I was groaning, okay, we'll call it that. Um, I was legitimately wrong. And so I'm trying to DNA, right, you guys, shepherd my heart out of this, exercise what we, what we try to teach you guys, and I can't. It's not happening. I'm blowing through truths. I'm blowing through the four Gs. I'm trying to pull myself out of this. I'm trying to love these truths of God, and it's not working. I don't think DNA is broken, okay? We're not going to throw it away. But it's not happening for me. And I'm like, I'm livid, okay? Like, when I get really angry, I cry, okay? I don't know why I'm emotional like that. I was just, I was livid. And so I said, God, I can't do this. It's not working. I don't know. What do I do? With pornography, guys, you can't just put on self-control. You can't. It won't work. With lying, you can't just put on truth. Jesus says that you have to put off first. He says, what? Remove the hand. Remove the eye. Pluck it out. Throw it in the fire. Not just stop looking. Pluck it out. If we want to think of this in a theological sense, and particularly a biblical theolog- theological sense, we need to look at, at what's really happening here in the old man. See, you can't add Christ to Adam. That's not how it works. You cannot add Christ to Adam. And I think that's what we try to do. We try to simply put Christ onto Adam. But listen, we are one of two natures, okay? We are first all of us, born of Adam. And the depravity of nature which we derive from him is called the old man. We all have an old man or an old maid, whatever. We all have that, all right? That's our nature from Adam. But, believers, as you are born again in Christ, we must first renounce our old first nature. That first nature and exposing again, I'll leave to Matt to develop beyond here. But the, the thing is, is we have to say, no longer of Adam. I am no longer of that nature. I put on Christ. You cannot add Christ to Adam. They are two different men, and they are two different heads, and they are two different races. You are of the race and the seed of Adam, or you are of the race and seed of Christ. And so how do we put off? How do we renounce that old man? The answer, mortification. Mortification means putting to death. And specifically, sin. I think we have a terrible view of sin. Sin can be defined as any failure to conform to the moral law of God, an act, an attitude, or nature. And so in our nature, we totally lack spiritual good before God. In our nature of Adam, we, lack, we have no spiritual good whatsoever. And then in our actions, we are totally unable to do spiritual good before God. We completely lack, and we cannot perform any. John Owen is responsible for these following quotes. He says, Mortification from a self-strength carried on by ways of self-invention, even biblical truths, 
to the end of a self-righteousness is the soul and substance of all false religion in the world. He says, do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? You must always be at it while you live. Do not take a day off from this work. Always be killing sin or it will be killing you. Sin is always acting. It's always conceiving. And it's always seducing and tempting. Who can say that he has ever had anything to do with God or for God, which indwelling sin has not tried to corrupt? Listen, if sin is subtle, watchful, strong, and always at work, if it is always at work in the business of killing our souls, and we, on the other hand, are slothful and negligent and foolish in this battle, can we really expect a favorable outcome? He says the main point thus far, even while we claim the meritorious mortification of our sin through the work of the cross of Christ and through the implantation of our new life in Christ is in opposition to and destructive of that expression of sin, sin remains. Sin remains, acts, and works in the best of believers while we are yet in this world. It must be our constant daily duty to mortify it. I'm going to use a word you know better than mortify Repent. This is repentance. Paul demands from a Christian man repentance or a new life, which he makes to consist of self-denial and the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. This is repentance and faith. This is not new to us. Repentance and faith. Because this is why I got lost trying to shepherd my heart through anger. I just wanted right belief apart from repentance. When it comes to issues of weight, I have to first put off wrong worship. Worship of food, worship of comfort. Then I can put on self-control. When it comes to anger, I have to first put off whatever the multitude of that may be. Pride, selfishness, arrogance, assertion of my rights. When I put those off first, then I can rest in the faith of God's truths. When it comes to pornography and lust, I told a pastor friend of mine that it was so freeing to be married, not for the sexual act altogether. The point and the freedom there is that I didn't feel tempted anymore. Before that, purity and and lust and staying away from pornography, pornography was such a fight. It was a challenge. It was a wrestling thing. It was something that I had to constantly overcome. And when I got married, it was like I wasn't even tempted anymore. The desire had vanished. It was awesome. It is awesome. And I, 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 I confessed at the time, I said, look, I, I know this, this may change in the future and I need to be alert for that. But it's only just in the past couple of months that I realized what it was that made it freedom. My worship changed. My worship changed to remove the desire. <coughs> It changed from from sex and personal fulfillment and even intimacy, a desire for intimacy that's good. It it changed from a worship of that, you're probably thinking to a worship of God. No, to a worship of my wife. Here's the problem now. I may be free from temptation while my worship of my wife is, is rock solid. But what happens when she can't bear the weight of my worship? When she's unavailable to me? When she's mean to me, 
when I'm upset with her? Then what? And so in that battle, I've got to be fighting to pull my worship away from my wife to God. This is not metaphysical. This is the Christian life. Recognizing and walking together in the good works that God has planned for us to seek to worship Him alone. So, let's bring this home. I think it's too easy for us to read these lists and miss it talking about us. It's sipping scripture two months ago. We read through Romans 1. And we got to the section on homosexuality. And uh, I'm not going to go into our culture's perception here. I want to talk to the church. I think for most people, and I'm not naive enough to think that there's no one in this room that does struggle with uh, same-sex attraction or homosexuality. Here's, here's my point. The majority of the church is going to look at that and be like, oh, that's them. I don't struggle with that. I'm married. I've got a wife. I've never maybe even legitimately had remotely been attracted to the same sex. What do we do with that? How do you read that scripture? Do you acknowledge it and move on? Or do you deal with it? What are the implications of that passage for a believer who doesn't struggle with homosexuality or same-sex attraction? It's, it's manifold in how you treat other people and in how you treat your wife who is in the right order of nature as Romans makes the argument. The, the point of homosexuality is against nature, not caring for others, self-centeredness, is that true of your sexual relationship with your spouse? We can't just skip these things and say, categorically, this is not speaking to me. And in our case, with our text today, if you're a believer, you can say categorically, this is not referring to me, it's what I once was. And praise God for that. But we can't simply dismiss it. We need to look at these texts and see how it speaks to who we were, so that we better understand ourselves or what we might need to look out for in the case of that homosexuality passage in Romans 1. If you look at 2 Corinthians 7.10, it says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. I had worldly grief for my anger. I had worldly grief for my weight. It produced death. I'm a believer. First John, walk through that. I feel assured in my salvation. I see my life in a trajectory of faith and repentance. I was producing death because I had worldly grief. Godly grief produces repentance. And that is what we need to be looking out for. Do not walk like the Gentiles do. Do not walk in worldly grief. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, and you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the Spirit of our God. Galatians 5.16, another list for us. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. The desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other 
to keep you from doing the things you want to do. You go on to see the two lists. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Walk. We must examine our walk. We must examine our walk. Let's talk about the Gentiles. Don't skip over this passage. Don't go on to just putting on Christ. Let's put off, all right? I know this wasn't the most encouraging message. I'm sorry. I think we need a week in hell. I think we need that. Dr. Platt, in his, his message, at the end says, what is it going to take for, in this case, pastors, for believers to hear the words unreached people group defined as people that have no Christians in the country, no churches, and no access to Scripture to be intolerable to us. I didn't have an answer. I do now. When we know what hell is. It's not intolerable yet for the people that we work with that sit in the next cubicle, that drive in the car next to us on the street to lunch, that we shake our fists at because they cut us off. When this could be the reality for them. Are you walking as the Gentiles too? And futility of mind and uselessness. So let's ask the questions. Who do you want to be? What's your goal? More specifically, what are you doing to get there? Do you see reality as Jesus sees it? Are you exercising silly methods for silly goals? How long will you put off dealing with this? How many more years are you going to pursue silly goals with silly methods before you actually come to terms with this? Do you seek godly knowledge? Do you exercise your mind? I said earlier that the worshipful acknowledgement of the one God is foundational to all useful knowledge. Do you acknowledge you acknowledge your Bible? The fact that you have the truth of God? What about your knowledge of God? Is it growing? Dr. Platt talked about someone having to maybe give up their life to go to a country that doesn't have the Bible and spend their entire life working on a translation so that they might have the Scriptures. And in that moment, in my mind, what did I think? I have to confess to you, why bother? People don't read their Bibles. How terrible is that of me? I don't read my Bible enough. But I can certainly judge other people for it too. But why bother? Why bother giving someone the word of life when it collects dust? If we're not careful, we walk like the Gentiles do. In futility of mind. What about darkening of understanding and thinking? Are you in darkness? Do you find the light in your life going out? I'd ask the question, 
Are you blind to truth? I'll answer this one for you. Yes. Yes, you are blind to truth. I am blind to truth. How do I know that? Because it says the deceitful desires. Due to your deceitful desires, we are experts at deceiving ourselves. Well, you think Matt over the past couple of weeks has given you a numerous multitude of opportunities to say, hey, what do you see in my life? I know that I can't see rightly. What do you see? Have you gone to your home gathering leader, DNA leader, to an elder, to a friend? Say, what do you see? Am I deceiving myself? Is this really the way that things are? Do you live according to your understanding? I mean, think about this. Do you live according to your understanding, assuming that you have a right perception? Because then I would ask, why do you worry about your finances or even your jobs? Do you have a good perception of people? Because then I would ask the question, why do we care so much? What people think about us? About how they value us? We look next at the alienated life. Do you have a relationship with the living God? Let's walk through the fruit of the Spirit. Is there love expressed in your life for other believers? Or are you cold and withdrawn? Are you filled with joy over the work of your Savior? Or do you grumble, complain, and pity yourself? Are you at peace with God and men? Or do you nitpick and sow strife? Are you patient when your rights are ignored and even trampled? Or do you get frustrated and short-tempered? Are you full of kindness, leading people to repentance, as God does? Or are you thoughtless and rude? Do you return good for evil, seeking the best in others? Or are you dishonest and vengeful? Are you full of faith, trusting God and His promises? Or do you doubt, distrust, and reject? Are you gentle and respectful? Or are you short and harsh and irritable? Do you exercise self-control and discipline and rest? Or are you rash and indulging? Do you have a relationship with God? Do you know Him? Jesus says in John 17, verse 3, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So let's talk about ignorance. Do you have a close personal relationship with him? Do you know him better today than you did in January? The year's a quarter over already. How are you taking advantage of the spoils Paul has laid out so far in chapter 4? Guys, we must check our hearts and repent. We must check our hearts and repent. In dealing with the hardness of heart, have you checked your heart? We've given you plenty of opportunities. We've told you to beware individualism. We've told you to beware doing life on your own, thinking you don't need help. And all we can do is warn and show biblical truth. We're trying to put on as much as we can. You have to put off. You have to repent. Are you still practicing individualism or are you laying down your life and uniting and growing into maturity? (coughs) C.S. Lewis again, just to repeat. We see raging like unchecked flames, their pride, paranoia, self-pity, their certainty that everyone else is wrong and that everyone else is an idiot. 
All their humility is gone, and thus so is their sanity. They are utterly, finally locked in a prison of their own self-centeredness, and their pride progressively expands into a bigger and bigger mushroom cloud. They continue to go to pieces forever, blaming everyone but themselves. What the hell is that, writ large? DNA will cost you something. You're going to have to get close with people. You're going to have to do the work. You're going to have to repent. You're going to have to learn how ugly we really are. I had to learn that I can be a very angry person. And that it's destructive and it's ugly. It does not at all represent what Christ is. You should see the wrath that Christ is going to be bringing in the second coming. He's angry. He's going to destroy sin once and for all. Banish it. He's defeated it. He's going to destroy it. That's good anger. That's not my anger. It's hard, guys. I get it. I get it. But I think, I think, if we can begin to put off instead of just trying to cover up with more makeup, more clothes, putting on Christ without putting off the old nature, trying to have the best of both worlds, I think we'll have some success. And I think that maturity and a unified body will be something sweet and exciting. But that's next week, okay? <laughs> I'll stay in hell this week. All right? Not really. You can take that out. <laughs> I'm listening to Side by Side by Ed Welch right now. I'm listening because it's an audiobook. Um, it's good. It's only like four hours long. I'll probably just put it on repeat. He says this, and this is what I'm going to close with. He says, seeing the weight of our sin is the beginning of power and confidence. When we see our sin, we are seeing the Spirit's conviction, which means we are witnessing spiritual power. But that power feels different from what we expect. It's not like worldly power. Spiritual power feels like a struggle or weakness or neediness or even desperation. It is simply, I need Jesus which is the most powerful thing that we can say. It means that our confidence is not in ourselves or in either our righteousness before God or our reputation before others. Our confidence is in Jesus, and that confidence cannot be shaken. It's just imagine. No more hiding from God. No more defensiveness in our relationships. When we have wronged others, we simply ask their forgiveness. Our security in Jesus gives us the opportunity to think less often about what others think of us. It gives us freedom to make mistakes and even fail. No longer do we have to build and protect our own kingdom. Sins weigh a lot. But those who can see their sins see something good. When we confess these sins, knowing that they are forgiven, we see something better. We see Jesus himself. Put off the old man. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you so much. <coughs> Father, we acknowledge you and your work as good as we can see it, as much as we can perceive, 
And Father, we are grateful. Father, I thank you for the contrast that you established for us so many times, but even more specifically here. As we take an opportunity to look at what we once were indeed, and not just skip over it because we're no longer there, but Father, to recognize our tendencies now and the warning that Paul gives that we may even still, though redeemed, though united with Christ, though seated with Him in the heavenlies, may try to revert to walking like we once did. Father, that apart from You and Your controlling influence, and Father, in Your grace in our life, as You show us real truth, real reality, real You, it puts away everything else that we could desire. That are, our desires that are deceitful. That seek our destruction. It's something that we want. Father, we're thankful, so thankful for Your Son. For delivering us from this mess. And from delivering us from ourselves. Self-worship, self-justification, self-righteousness. We know that our Righteousness is filthy rags. But I like worn out clothes. They're comfortable. I'm used to them. Father, give us a holy dissatisfaction with ourselves and our kingdoms. Let us walk with courage and the resources that you've provided us to fight sin to know that while we are still here, we are subject to it, but we have victory over it. Father, that you paid the price. And the reason that we cannot feel shame is because you took the shame and you bore it with your son. Father, the reason we don't have guilt is because it was paid for. Not because we just wantonly neglect it, not because we pursue it with our all, but because it's gone. Father, help us put off. Let's be aware of the work of your Spirit in our lives as we seek to put to death the desires of the flesh and live alive to Christ. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.